Hi, I'm Drithi Shah and this is my podcast, Have You Thought About? Thank you for joining us for season two. I'm a writer and I love to find out about what passions people are pursuing and also what makes them tick. The podcast is for those who are reckoning and tired of being told you can really just have this one focus, just one thing that makes you you. In each edition, I'm going to chat with someone who breaks these lines and who's managed to fit things together in their life or profession that you might not think of as an obvious match. You're about to hear me chatting with Lee Honeywell, a digital security expert, founder and CEO of Tall Poppy, and someone who has a passion for disaster preparedness and activism. Now, Lee, you've got over a decade's experience in computer security and you've worked with some pretty big names before setting up a very unusual company. So tell us a little bit more about your background and journey to Tall Poppy. I think the the thing that I love the most about working on Tall Poppy is that it really combines my sort of past day jobs and educational background in computer science, where you know, I was working at big companies like Microsoft, Salesforce, and eventually Slack, doing somewhat traditional cybersecurity work, although I, I was fortunate to get to do pretty cutting edge stuff, protecting companies, protecting infrastructure, all of that stuff, super important and very like formative in my career. And at the same time, I was doing a lot of activist work, I was doing organizing, and being able to combine the two in the way that we work with individuals, and in many cases, individuals who are themselves fighting for social change and social justice. I think that's something that I find really fulfilling about the current work and the work that we do with Tall Poppy. But what is Tall Poppy for people who think maybe it's like something gardening related? What is this cool <laughs> thing that you've actually created? So we're a cybersecurity company focused on personal cybersecurity. So, you know, many people have done the sort of like you work at a big company and you have to do the security training that's like, don't click on the phishing email and get the company hacked. Our focus is really making sure that people don't get hacked and people don't experience cybersecurity issues as well as more broad sort of personal security issues. We originally came at it from the angle of online harassment, that that was like the big like blow up issue that people were dealing with, these sort of online mobbings and cyber stalking, all of this. People sometimes use the term cyber bullying, which I've always found it like it's just bullying. It happens to be on a computer, but it's, you know, if it's and I think calling it bullying in many ways also sort of takes away from the severity of some of the stuff that we've dealt with, where it's it's very much like full on like criminal stalking. I've never been one to to really like that. That sort of cyber bullying thing, I think, diminishes a little bit of the threats that people face. So really, the focus is that sort of personal cybersecurity outside of the corporate firewall, protecting people's personal accounts, personal information, and personal safety. But how did you make that move from taking perhaps more secure roles and being like, no, I'm going to go away, I'm going to create this app, create this thing that's actually quite at the vanguard. There's not a lot of things out there like what you've created. So how did you take that risk, as it were? The fortune and the misfortune. I think the fortune is that I was in a position where I'd been working in tech for a bunch of years. I had some savings. I had a network. I had access to you know venture capital. And so in many ways, I was very fortunate. And then the misfortune is Sometimes there's an itch that nobody else has scratched yet, and you got to be the one to scratch it. And I actually came up with the idea that would eventually become Tall Poppy all the way back in 2014 during the, the Gamergate crisis, when all of these women video game journalists and critics were getting attacked online by like a, a horde of weirdos who really had too much time on their hands. The sort of idea came to me that like, how do we get leverage to support people who are dealing with stuff like this. And, you know, when you think about who can be the sort of payor for stuff like this, it could be the individual, and that seems, that sucks. It could be like governments or 
agencies, sort of the nonprofit world, or when it's people that have a job, shouldn't the employer have a duty of care to protect people who are dealing with these personal security, personal safety issues in the course of their job? And that was the real lightning bolt moment was like, oh, this is something that like companies should be paying for to protect their staff. So came up with the idea all the way back in 2014, but I was living in the US on a visa and you're not allowed to like start companies on the visa that I was on. So I was like, oh, I guess I'm just going to like keep thinking about this for four years until I got my green card. And then I got my green card in February 2018 and I incorporated in April. So that was like, I was kind of like, well, nobody else has done this. Clearly, this is something that I still need to do. It's I've still been thinking about it. I still see it as a need in the world. And the rest is history. Your passion. How did you make sure that it was maintained? Because four years is a long time, especially in the tech world. If you think about that time frame, there, there was an election in 2016. That was pretty stressful living in the States as somebody like as an immigrant. There were a lot of things going on day to day. But I, I kept doing the work fundamentally in my evenings and weekends, working one on one with individuals who were dealing with these like severe personal security issues. Whether it was because of activism, whether it was like, you know, connected to an intimate partner violence scenario or intimate partner abuse, we saw a real rise in that time in a type of malware called stalkerware, which is, uh, or spouseware, which is like an even creepier term. This is sort of apps that people would install on their significant other's phones either with or without their knowledge, and then use them to surveil things like location. And there's also, you know, mobile devices have built-in functionality that allows for that kind of surveillance. Stuff like the Find My in, um, in iOS, like, you know, you can consensually share your location with people. Sometimes that's like a healthy and good thing if it's like a parent who's trying to keep track of like a small child. But in an abusive situation, that can be really, really scary. So really sort of tracking that arc of the field, staying current with threats that people were facing. And then when I had the sort of logistical opportunity and the time was right for me personally, I was able to, you know, actually start the company and, and hit the ground running because I'd been keeping up to date. And I also spent a lot of time, it's sort of cheesy, but like learning about entrepreneurship and like talking to other people who started companies and, and learning all that stuff so that when I was actually logistically able to, particularly with the, the visa stuff, I was able to start the company. You're a founder. You're not a conventional type of founder. So what's that journey been like? Up to downs but generally trending upwards i think the it has been harder in ways that i didn't anticipate and some of the things have been easier stuff that's been harder has been things like fundraising there's an oft-touted statistic that three percent of venture capital is raised by women which is pretty depressing if you think about like some of the big brands and names in the world that were founded by women and i think every woman founder goes into this being like oh i know it's three percent but it's, it can't be that hard, right? Like, I'm really good at what I do. There's always the sort of like, oh, I didn't follow up on that one email. Maybe it's not. Maybe I'm I'm not dealing with bias. Maybe it's actually just that, like, I suck personally, right? Then I come back to like 3%. That's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. So I'm very fortunate to have some fantastic investors on, you know, on my cap table that have believed in the company, that have believed in me and my team. But I think the the fundraising thing has been legitimately really, really hard. Hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, we'll have some exciting news to share. So stay tuned. It's been a slog. I think that's the, the technical term. The stuff that's been easier that people I feel like constantly complain about, I hear other founders being like, man, it's so hard to hire. It's so hard to like get the word out. And I think we have the sort of fortune of this is a like a, an issue that people care a lot about and want to work on. And so, you know, when we've been recruiting, when we've been hiring, we've just had like 
a ton of incredible, incredible people apply. I feel like if I had the budget, I could hire twice as like I could double the team tomorrow, which would be challenging for like other cultural reasons. But I think the I've been very, very fortunate that hiring amazing people has been relatively easy compared to what I hear from other people. And and also just like we've done basically no marketing since day one and we're doing like pretty good. And a lot of that has been that like people like you want to talk about these stuff. And I'm really, really grateful for that. So we actually have our first marketing intern right now. Um, She's been making TikToks. It's very exciting. Figuring out the things that are hard for us that are easy for others and the other way around has been a really like interesting part of the journey. You're awesome. Just I keep saying that every so often. But <laughs> how do people discover who you are? You have a marketing intern now. Is it word of mouth? And also not just people in terms of who need what Tall Poppy offers, what you offer, but the investors too. Is it a lot of cold calling? Is it a lot of, oh, actually, here's one person who really believes in me. Can they recommend me to somebody else? Like, How does that actually work? Because it feels like connections are actually quite important in this game, in the investor game. It's been super interesting seeing how the word of mouth and networks work in this field. A couple of the ways that we've gotten the word out, I used to be very active on Twitter, RIP. And so certainly like social and the social presence, a lot of referrals. We've worked with a number of particularly trust and safety teams. So these are the teams at tech companies who they ban the like internet Nazis or whatever the sort of current bout of nastiness is. Those teams are the folks that do content moderation. And one thing that we found is that the trust and safety community is very tight knit. Everybody knows each other. And so when we ended up working with a couple of like major company platforms whose names start with T, the sort of diaspora of folks from those companies who now work at other companies tend to like bring us in in subsequent roles. So we've seen a lot of business come that way as people move around in these various roles doing sort of media talking about what we do, I think has been really useful in terms of just a thing that I learned in the sort of like, as I'm learning how to do sales, like I'm a security person, I computer scientist, like I'm, I'm not a business person by training and learning how to do sales has been a big piece of like, what I, I sort of didn't even know what I didn't know going into this. A big thing has been this sort of like idea of educating people about the thing that we do even exists, right? I think that's one of the, the really interesting challenges of building something new is that people don't even realize that there might be a solution to the problem that they're having. Um, so just literally just like talking to people, talking to people like you about what we're doing is one of the most important things that we've been doing in terms of the sort of like promotion of the thing. So um, one of the other things that we've been doing is engaging in the sort of civil society efforts around fighting online. There's different terms used in different places. I think the UK is using online harms a fair bit as a sort of catch-all term. Other places use online violence and online harassment is the sort of traditional term, but all of these different things. There's a a group out of the International Women's Media Fund called the Coalition Against Online Violence. And we've been highly engaged in that for the past two years. We have sort of regular calls and talk around what are the different efforts in the world in like civil society, nonprofit land around combating online harms. That's been a really important way for us to like give back because, you know, we are a commercial for-profit company. 
although we're not profitable yet, but being able to participate in that dialogue and that discourse and be a resource and service provider to that to that community and the various communities that they support has been really important to us. So just to make sure that we break it down for the audience, like if you're an individual, can you download Tall Poppy or is it something you have to get your company to sign up for? And then just again, very quickly, what happens once you log on? Like, how does it help you? Yeah. So we currently only sell to businesses. We really don't want to be charging individual consumers for the work that we do. So our like official product is, is something that we only sell to businesses and organizations. The other things in terms of the participation in the ecosystem, we work with a number of groups that provide public and free resources. Back in the summer, we released a new guide to staying safe online on the Feminist Frequency Games Harassment Hotline website. So that was actually a guide that was originally produced in 2014. And this was the first big update of this guide in quite a few years. And we're really, really proud of having been able to contribute to that. We did the sort of tech editing of it. We're also involved in a number of other projects that that provide public resources for for individuals who aren't necessarily like coming through a company. One of my favorite resources uh, along those lines is the Consumer Reports Security Planner. This is a free public tool that anyone can use to improve their overall personal cybersecurity and personal safety practices. It's really like the best product on the market for the general public. So highly, highly recommend checking that out. I believe it's securityplanner.org. And then we have an extensive public resources page where we link to all of this different stuff, a whole number of resources, both from the sort of tech support, like how do you keep people from hacking into your stuff, but also the sort of psychosocial support. Because I think that's one of the things that, I mean, we can say cybersecurity very broadly, but also specifically talking about stuff like online violence. We don't talk enough about how like upsetting and frankly traumatizing some of this stuff can be, even if it's just like just a scam or just some sort of like untargeted attack, it can still be like really upsetting to people. And um, I think making sure that folks have that sort of psychosocial support and resources is really important to me. So to your actual question of like, if somebody you know works at a company that we work with, what is the process? We do two things. We have a web app that can scale to like an entire company. It walks people through protecting themselves proactively, as well as if you do become the target of online harassment, what are the things that you can do to mitigate and reduce the harm? We also provide incident response support within the context of our like customer base. So you know, folks can obviously self-serve through the app, or we will get on the phone with them and walk them through threat assessment, potentially working with law enforcement if that's something that they're comfortable with, with all the, the sort of asterisks of law enforcement, like really struggles to deal with this stuff. And also lots of people do not feel comfortable interacting with law enforcement for many very valid reasons. So we've got this web app that we built, we roll out broadly. We also do a sort of executive service where we go over one-on-one with folks. And typically this is, you know, going by the name, it's executives, it's particularly high profile people within an organization. And it is a more expensive service because it requires a human to like interact with the person. So we don't tend to roll that out super, super broadly within organizations. But we do two big things there. One is what we call a digital footprint assessment. Um, In the digital footprint assessment, the sort of like joking way I explain it, but it's like pretty accurate is we basically like cyber stalk you with your consent. So (laughs) if I was really mad at Druti, what would I find about her on the internet? Too much. Um, We basically do that. Walk through people's like online profile, use a bunch of tools to figure out, you know, what kind of data breaches has your email address been in. Therefore, I can find out your like 
Neopets account from 2014 or whatever. Hey, you might want to reset the password to that because I found the password in a breach dump and stuff like that. So that's the digital footprint assessment. And then the second piece is an advanced security review. This is where a deep dive one-on-one interview where we go over like, how do you use technology? And then we make customized recommendations based on how you're currently using stuff and and what you could do to to secure the stuff that you already use. See, it's so weird because a lot of what you say makes common sense but you are at the vanguard of a lot of this in terms of like the the company itself in terms of the way that you've been thinking in terms of the conversations that you're having so that's going to let me sort of segue a little bit you're clearly multi-talented multifaceted how do you not break with so many ideas with such a big brain and so many different (laughs) things going on and also the fact that you're working in security and it's, it's not necessarily the most positive space to be in constantly i think a big thing for me has always been in terms of making this work sustainable and not too crazy making is really like identifying what is the small chunk of the world that I can break off and fix in a very like small contained way. And I do have a zillion projects on the go, or at least on the planning board. I I feel like being able to make like little bits of progress on all of them makes me feel really happy, even if I'm not like getting obviously tall poppy is my day job. That's like the thing I am the most focused on. But my other sort of like hats that I'm wearing right now are I'm on the board of a local nonprofit that's doing housing advocacy. So we have a housing crisis in Canada, which is bonkers because we have so much space. Every time I say that out loud, I'm like, this is the most ridiculous thing ever. But the reality is that Canada has built the fewest houses per population of any country in the G20. I have been an immigrant in the States. I very deeply and strongly believe in immigration to Canada. But there's something about like, if we actually want to be welcoming, we have to build houses. I've been really involved in this local nonprofit. And literally, we're talking about like changing little tiny bits of the world. I show up at these like Zoom housing consultation meetings for like an 18 unit apartment building that people are like up in arms about, oh, you're going to cast a shadow over my backyard or like, this is going to add all this traffic on this like really high traffic street. And I'm just like, hey, we are in a housing crisis and a climate crisis. Can we get this building built, please? And one of the really like powerful things that I learned about housing a few years ago, which honestly just was one of those like total mind blown moments is the people who are already here. They are the ones that are showing up at these meetings to say, like, I don't want this. I don't want more neighbors. The people who are not yet in those 18 units, we don't know who they are. They don't know to show up at that Zoom meeting. And so it is the responsibility of those of us who are already here, who know that this is a problem, to show up and be like, no, actually, we need to build this building. One of my big hobby horses right now is housing. Can I just throw something into the mix? Because actually, I'd quite like to hear your thoughts on this, because I was at a conference very recently, where you mentioned climate, and people were talking about something similar with nature, and people being a voice for nature, like representing the rivers or representing particular elements of nature in those meetings, whether it's planning meetings or uh, like government meetings. But what you're doing is at a smaller scale, a particular component is housing. But it's interesting that there is that movement going on where people are stepping up beyond who they are specifically in order to be able to represent not necessarily the voiceless, but those who don't actually know what's going on or can't be there even though they're the ones that are subject to it like physically aren't there yet a couple of years ago i read kim stanley robinson's ministry for the future which is a sort of near future climate change science fiction and i highly highly recommend it 
kind of content note for the first couple chapters describe like an unsurvivable heat wave in India and it's really really like it's a it's a rough scene so I always like caveat that so that people don't dive into this book and they're like oh my god because I was definitely like sobbing by like the third chapter but it's worth it super worth it book is amazing going by the title ministry for the future the the sort of conceit of the book is that the United Nations sets up a ministry to engage in like the legal defense like through litigation and stuff of people who have not yet been born. And this is actually a like legal strategy that is being tried in the real world. And as you, you know, you mentioned the defending the lakes and the rivers, there has been, I think Greta Thunberg, the climate activist, she's one of the folks that has been like advocating for this strategy of like literally children suing governments and polluters and all of these different folks that are like messing things up because there's a future harm and i think that's a you know i'm not i'm not a lawyer although i was raised by a pack of lawyers but i think it's a really really interesting strategy a good segue to the other little chunk of trying to fix things that i've been thinking a lot about which is really around like emergency preparedness this is a thursday we were supposed to record on a tuesday and i had to reschedule because my internet had been down because We'd had this huge storm and the power was out for a couple days. And that's like the second one this year. And last year we had a derecho, which is something I only learned about recently, but it's basically a tornado without the twisters. It's like that degree of storm, but there's no funnels that touch down. And so we had this derecho in May 2022 in Ottawa, which took out, I think, about a quarter million people's power. We were without power for nine days. And thankfully, like, we have a generator because we've been thinking about this stuff. But that is like, we were very lucky to have a generator. We didn't have internet for nine days. So that was, that was challenging. But just thinking about all of that sort of like, you know, as we're dealing with this increased frequency of weather events, I, I grew up in Ottawa. We did not have tornadoes when I was growing up. That was just like, it was not a thing. And we've now had two this year so far. And the derecho last year, this is like very, very different. And so anytime that people are like doubting climate change, I'm like, are you, are, do you not see what's happening? Like I did not grow up in a place with tornadoes. So that's kind of wild. But when I was living in San Francisco before I moved home to Canada, I went through a program called NERT, the Neighborhood Emergency Response Team. And uh, this is a program that was set up in the wake of the 1989 earthquake, uh, where they realized like, hey, let's actually get a whole bunch, let's build surge capacity of individual members of the community who want to learn the basics of first aid, the basics of like, we call it earthquake eyes, look at a building see if it has unreinforced masonry. Is it going to fall down now that we've had this earthquake? Identifying like, where's the natural gas shutoff line? So because when in the 89 earthquake, all these houses caught on fire because the gas lines broke. And so you got to be able to like, let's go turn off the gas, the gas outputs. So building that sort of community resilience is something that I've been thinking a lot about. This past weekend, we had this other power outage. My neighbor's fridge was plugged into my garage because we had the generator running. So making sure that people are like talking to their neighbors and identifying like, hey, who in the neighborhood is an elderly person who's not mobile? Can we make sure that they're okay in the wake of this storm or whatever? And then you've got the additional challenge of like you're in a high rise or like multi-unit buildings. How do we make sure that, frankly, that the laws require those buildings to have generators so that somebody who's like less mobile is able to like get out of the building if there's any sort of incident? We have this nine-day power outage. If you're on the top story of a tall building, 
you're stuck there. And if there's a medical emergency, that can be super, super scary. So some of this stuff can be done in the like super individual community level. Some of this stuff has to be done from like a regulatory framework because, you know, some random apartment building, they're not going to install a generator out of like the goodness of their hearts. You have to regulate them. But my dream is that everybody should have something like the NERT program in San Francisco. And like there are programs like that around the United States. But as far as I've been able to tell in Canada, there's only like the 72 hours of supplies kind of level of community preparedness. I want to go a step higher than that and like get people talking to each other, get people learning these skills. Although thankfully we don't need to learn the like earthquake goggles as much here. It doesn't take that much work to do this kind of emergency preparedness, but it takes knowledge and like access to the information. And that's, I think, the big thing that I think is missing right now. And that was the amazing Lee Honeywell digital security expert, founder and CEO of Tall Poppy, and helping you get prepped for all emergencies. Do you have an interdisciplinary life? Because I would love to hear from you and perhaps we can chat on this podcast that goes with my newsletter, which is called Have You Thought About? and can be found via www.dritishah.com. Please join me next time for a fun conversation with another guest who likes to mix up lots of things in their life. If you like the podcast, do share, rate and review. It's an independent podcast and if you find it helpful, then let people know. Thank you to Reen Shah for the music.